start off by reading um, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruits of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. But to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we reached the end of chapter 2 and talking about the institution of marriage. We didn't get into the issue of nakedness, but there are themes of maturation that are already playing within this text, which we discussed last time. The themes of a creation that is temporarily charged, that is moving forward in history. A creation that is created to grow and to mature and to go out into the world, when you see the description of the world, it's 
It's one where you have, for instance, the description of the land of Havilah with the gold of there being good, and other lands where there are precious stones and things. And the assumption is that they're going to go out and they're going to tame these lands. They're going to go out and they're going to mine the resources and bring them in and dress the garden with the world. And so the world is anticipating this process of growth. And so what we see of Genes in Genesis 2 is not necessarily the final perfect state. Rather, it's a good state, but it's a good state of childhood. It's something that they need to move beyond. And so the, I mentioned last time, the man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife and becoming one flesh, that is a movement forward in history. It's a breaking of an old union in order that a new union might be formed. It's part of the engine of time, the way that we move forward into the future. And that has a reference not just to the relationship between man and wife and between parents and children, but also to the relationship between God and Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are to move forward and out into the world, and part of that will be leaving that childhood realm of the garden and going out and exercising dominion within the wider world. The command concerning the tree that's given in verse, in verse 16 you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There is a verse there, that, two verses there, that raise some important issues. First of all, this occurs before Eve comes on the scene. This is a commandment that's given to Adam alone at that point. And this is important to bear in mind for what follows in chapter 3. It's part of the background that explains, for instance, why the woman could be deceived whereas the man was not deceived. The man um, openly and willfully transgressed. The woman did not have that commandment directly given to her, but secondhand from Adam. Another thing to notice is that the concept of the knowledge of good and evil in Scripture is not necessarily a bad, it's not a bad thing to have. It's associated with maturity, with growth, um, it's something that king, kings have. It's something that the angel of the Lord has. This ability to see and to judge and that knowledge of good and evil is part of what it means to be a mature and uh, a ruling grown-up. It's what it means to be a judge. It's something that we see within God's own creation work that God sees and he judges. That knowledge of good and evil to declare upon his creation that it is good or very good that's something that humankind is called to grow into. Now, we've already seen that Adam is trained in apprentice to God. God is his father, and as he works with God, he's given these animals that he has to name, and he's given these other tasks that train him in the basic work of discernment. And part of that discernment is this law that he's given concerning the tree. There is a limit that he has to it's the keys for the father's car or something like that. And it's a young teenager and he's not to go out joyriding until he's got, he's not to go out in the car until he's got his license. When he's prepared for that, he can go out. I've suggested in the last talk that perhaps we should see the tree of life as related to just the basic um, level of life and then the maturity as you grow in dominion you can then eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see references to, for instance, the knowledge of good and evil in association with Solomon's dream, where he asked the Lord for wisdom. I'll read that passage in 
and Kings. Solomon's prayer for wisdom. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? And so this request for the knowledge of good and evil, the ability to discern good and evil, it's the ability to judge. Um, it's a tree of judgment that the, knowledge of good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. And along with the tree of life, it is at the center of the garden. Now, suggested in passing last time also that the Garden of Eden should be seen as a sort of proto-sanctuary. It's God's re residence where he's present present with his people in the midst of the world. The, it's the navel of the world, the point where heaven and earth meet, where there's a heaven model on earth. And that heaven model has to be brought out to the wider creation. And also the creation has to be brought in to the sanctuary. And we see this in Revelation. The world is brought into the garden. The garden is dressed with the precious stones, gates of pearl, the sea as well. The world is brought into the garden but then the pattern of the garden is brought out into the world. And so there's this process of maturation that lies behind a lot of what's taking place here. So what we see is not necessarily um, this perfect state that has already arrived, and then human beings fall away from that perfect state. Rather, there's an improper form of growth. Um, and these themes behind the the passage are significant for understanding what's taking place. Adam and Eve will have to leave the garden at some point to go out into the world, to till the earth, and to exercise, to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over its creatures. Now, that requires this period of training, this probation period in the garden. And that period is a period of grace where they're provided for, they have the fruit trees to eat of. They're not having to transform the world to the same extent as they will when they go out further where they'll have to be relying a lot more upon fire and other means by which to transform the earth. Fruit trees are fairly readily, and um, they provide us with food fairly readily in a way that tilling the earth takes a lot more labor. It's a lot more onerous and difficult, but it's a form of growth. It's a movement beyond that basic state of provision within the garden to Adam becoming provident himself that Adam learns from God's provision for him, and he becomes more provident in his relationship to his offspring. So within this garden situation, Adam has been given a particular charge. He's been given the charge concerning the tree, but beyond that, he's also been given the responsibility to guard and to serve the garden. So that guarding, in part, is to protect the boundaries of the garden from intruders, from things that come from outside, the very concept of, of the garden suggests that there are, as we see in Genesis, there's this suggestion that this is a bounded realm. Um, there is an entrance to the garden, an entrance that can be guarded by cherubim later on. So it's not just this open area that can be accessed from any position. There is an entrance that must be protected, and a boundary between the world. This is a realm that has, as it were, a protective realm around, a protective barrier around it that distinguishes it from the 
surrounding, um, surrounding realm. So it's, it's a bounded place which has a distinction from the greater world. And that's significant because it helps us to understand the way that this realm works is distinct from the well, way that the realm around it works. There's a movement from, world, from garden to land to the wider world. And that preparation within the garden, it's a, it's a kindergarten. It's a realm for children. It's a place where children are prepared. And part of that is being naked. That when you're a child, you are... The people who are na- naked in our world are lovers and children, particularly. And there's, there's something significant to that, that there's a sort of entrance into a, a childlike relationship in some way in love. But there's also something about the child, that they've not yet grown in glory. And glory is to be something that we can be clothed with. And when we see, for human beings more generally, we don't just wear clothes to cover up our nakedness. Our clothes are expressive of glory, of something that is greater than just our peeled state, as C.S. Lewis talks about it, that the human being without clothes is a peeled thing, something that has lost a level that is... The outer level of clothing is natural to us. It's part of who we are. It expresses who we are. And so if you wear your clothes of office, for instance, they express that you are a mayor, or maybe you're a king or a queen, or maybe you're some member of a workforce. Whatever it is, your clothes are part of who you are. It's addressing with the world as well. If you think of all the animals, the animals don't wear clothes. The animals don't dress themselves with the world. They're not transforming the world in the same way as we do with fire um, and other, other means of technique. And so the human being is related to the world in a far more powerful and intimate way as the one who transforms the world, who creates environments, does not just living in environments and feeding off environments, but one who transforms environments and creates environments and dresses themselves with the world. So we are creatures that are supposed to grow into the world and grow out of the world, and that is something that involves the process of clothing. So the clothing of the high priest, for instance, as you get to that point in um, the description in Exodus, the priest is clothed with the world, with the vegetation of the world, with linen, with the animals of the world, with wool, and with precious stones and gold and other aspects of the world that show that this is a worlded person, someone who has glorified them, who is glorified by God as they bear the world upon them. And part of the purpose for Adam and Eve as they go out into the world is that the world should, as it were, come into them, that they should be clothed with this. And so the nakedness, in part, is an absence of glory. But it's also an absence of shame. Shame can be related to this absence of glory, but it's it's something more than that. It's a stripping of something. It's a, an exposure. It's a sense of a loss of integrity, a loss of wholeness. And so while the infant is naked, the in- infant is innocent and unashamed. They haven't yet, it's not as if some level of glory has been stripped away from them. They haven't yet attained to glory. And so there's not a loss of integrity in the same way as the adult who's stripped of clothing, where it's a deeply shameful thing. It's a removal or a divestment of the world that is proper to them, is proper to us. We should be clothed with the world. But when we lose that level of 
reality, and when we're stripped, we are de-worlded, we are cut off, we become, as it were, like refuse, something that's removed from that order, rather than placed within it and glorified by it. And so Christ on the cross, for instance, it's almost a spitting out of the person from the the social fabric. I mean, the way we talk about social fabric is significant. It's fabric, it's something that clothes us. And then the human being spit out of that, it's a human being that has been robbed of their worldedness. So the nakedness that occurs at this point is a nakedness that is without shame. It's a nakedness that is an absence of glory, but it's also an exposure to each other that is not, is not destructive. It's, an, a proper, it's a proper openness of man and woman to each other, that man and woman are clothed together, cover, covered, as it were, with the sheets of the bed. They're, they're open to each other, but clothed to the, clothed to the wider world. There's a, an openness that is proper to that relationship between man and woman. A nakedness, a, a transparency. Uh, they are peeled, as it were, to each other. There's no covering, but yet that covering that is removed is not uh, an exposure that leads to shame. When we do see the admission of shame later on, that covering up from each other, that's something that has gone wrong in their relationship with each other. It's not just the absence of glory, which they feel very keenly, but it's the absence of the ability to be open to each other. So in some portrait, some pictures, for instance, of this scene, you see Adam covering his face, Eve covering her private parts. And each of these expresses something of our nakedness and exposure. For Adam, it's very much that sense of the self that needs to be covered, the face. Or um, for the woman, her parts, and it doesn't... I don't think it's significant, the difference between them at this point, but in both cases, there's a sense of something of ourselves that is exposed. Um, So there's a famous, um, I'm trying to remember exactly how it goes, but a story of people who are caught swimming naked in Cambridge and um, whether they covered their face or covered their um, private parts. But... um, Yeah, I can't remember it well enough to tell it. I'll have to find it later, but it's rather amusing. Sorry. (laughs) But this theme of nakedness is significant within this passage because it's not just about the absence of sin, it's about the absence of glory. And this growth into this state of glory is something that is proper to humankind. And it's part of what this story has set us up for, that human beings should be clothed with the world, the garden should be clothed with the world, human beings should go out into the world and rule within the world, but there's a precipitation of this through their sin, and they're cast out prematurely, and that is not a good thing. Now, the serpent comes into the garden, and it's significant that he comes into the garden. He's not one of the creatures from this garden. He's not one of the domestic animals, as it were, one of the animals of the house. He's one of the beasts of the field. He's a creature from the wider world. And this is not necessarily, again, a bad thing in and of itself. Maybe the creature, the beast of the field, comes into the garden to train them, to prepare them for their role within the wider world. That a guardian-type figure, an angel who is supposed to equip them for going out, 
and this is something that we see more generally, that we have to initially learn from animals as we inhabit new environments. We learn where the water is, we learn where the sort of foods we should eat and what things will make us sick. We learn um, the paths to navigate. All these sorts of things can be learned from animals. And so the bringing of the, God, of the serpent into the garden is not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. There has been a passing of a crossing of a boundary, but that boundary is not necessarily something that um, should have excluded the serpent, but it should lead us to think about what is the serpent doing there? Adam should be on his guard. He should be watchful. You, open, you can open your gates to the world, but when you open your gates to the world, you're watchful about what comes in and what comes out. And when something comes in, you pay attention to it. You don't leave it unattended. You don't leave it just to have its force and its um, activity within that realm without thinking about what is it doing there. This is an external element, an external agency that has entered into the garden. And Adam is the custodian, the one who's particularly given responsibility to God and to serve the garden, should be alert. What is this serpent doing there? And he should be concerned, particularly, because he's been given charge of the garden. He's been given the task of maintaining the boundaries to guard and to keep, to the physical boundaries of the garden. But he's also been given a command. These trees at the center of the garden, and that one particular tree that they're not supposed to eat of, lest they die. And so when the serpent comes to the woman, we should have all of this in mind. Why does the serpent come to the woman? I think there are a number of reasons the serpent comes to the woman, but one of the reasons... The, most in, the initial reason is because the woman is not as equipped to protect herself against the serpent as the man. The man has been given a command concerning the tree directly from God. He knows exactly what God has said in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. The woman does not. She's received this second hand from God. And on the other hand, she has received, a, she has received instruction directly from God. If we go back to chapter 1... Chapter 129, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. That's significant. She has received, as she was created with Adam, that initial instruction concerning the trees and the fruit. And the assumption is that all these trees have been given for food. And then Adam get, comes with the secondary commandment, this particular tree you're not supposed to eat of. What the serpent does is he plays those two things off against each other. The thing that she received firsthand and then the thing that she received secondhand from Adam. And so there are a number of dynamics to pay attention to here. One of the things is that the serpent is casting into doubt not just God's integrity but Adam's integrity. Is Adam hold, withholding from her something about the truth of the situation? Um, and He's setting people at odds. One of the first things he does, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now there's an innuendo here. It's a very subtle um, thing that the serpent slips in. Even if she says no to that, and the serpent is quite prepared for her to say no to that, the serpent has subtly represented God as fundamentally prohibitive in his approach to Adam and Eve. And that's not what God did. God said you can eat of... God 
furnished them with the world, giving them to them freely. So it wasn't something that he restricted them to just a few items or said, no, 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 no. He gave it to them freely, and they said, this one particular tree, don't eat of that. And that's a completely different posture from the one that the serpent insinuates to Eve. And so even when Eve says, no, that's not what God said, she does not manage to challenge sufficiently that underlying insinuation, the insinuation that God is one who is restrictive and one who withholds from them his good gifts. And so that instruction at this point is repeated by Eve, but Eve recognizes that the commandment given to Adam is one that includes her too, that as she was brought in as or given to the man as a helper in his calling within the world, and she shares in that calling, that she comes under the commandment given to the man within the garden, that this is something that applies to her too. You shall not eat of any tree of the garden applies to both the couple. And why is another reason why the serpent comes to the woman, I think, is because the woman has more power than anyone else in relationship to the man. The man is supposed to hold fast to the woman. Now, part of the reason why the man holds fast to the woman is because the woman has the heart of the man. And when she has the heart of the man, she's in a tremendously powerful position. If the serpent had approached the man directly, the man would have related to the serpent in a way that would be far more easy for him to resist. He could just say no and oppose the serpent. But when the serpent comes through the woman, the serpent has traction upon the man in a way that he does not otherwise. When you notice the man sinning, it's significant that he goes along so meekly and unquestioningly. He does not raise any sort of opposition. He just goes along freely. And that's significant because she has a power in relationship to him that the serpent does not. The serpent draws attention to the fruit, saying that God knows that when they eat of it, their eyes will be opened and they will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this tree is not just something that's forbidden for them, just absolutely as an arbitrary commandment. There's a sense in which God is withholding them from this tree because this tree is a significant one. This is a tree that promises something. It promises wisdom, it promises rule within the world, and it promises judgment, this admission to a greater stage of life. And God, in withholding it from them, is withholding them from enjoying something good. And this opening of the eyes is significant. This, the eyes are the eyes, the organs of judgment. We hear and we obey, we see and we judge. And when God judges, he sees his creation, he judges that his is good, he wants us to grow into that too, but that requires having our eyes opened to be able to perceive what is good and evil and to judge accordingly. And so when the serpent talks to the, man, talks to the woman at this point, he's also talking as one of the creatures of the wider world. And presumably as a creature, he's a creature renowned for his shrewdness. And there's a play on words here as well, that the, the man and the woman were both nude and unashamed, and the serpent is shrewd. There's a sense that there's, these two things are played off against each other. Their innocence and his cunning and his shrewdness. 
And when he comes into the garden, he comes in as one who's wise, who's canny, who has this sort of shrewd wisdom. And this is something that is praised within scripture in various ways, um, that we should be wise as serpents, that the serpent is one from whom you can learn a certain sort of wisdom. And there are different types of wisdom that we read about in scripture. There's the sort of wisdom that is associated very much with the king who sees and judges, but then there's also this canny, this shrewd, this cunning that we can often see, particularly in the work of women within scripture, the women who deceive tyrants, who overcome those who would seek to outwit them. And so this wisdom of the person who does not necessarily have great power, but can use, who can outwit people, who can um, use their, their cunning and their ability to read a situation to find paths that others would not perceive. And so the serpent is a creature from which to learn wisdom. So when the serpent says that your eyes will be opened and when you eat of this tree, you will know good and evil, he's speaking as one who presumably represents something of what this will mean. He's speaking as one who stands on the other side of that boundary, as the one who has entered in, who's part of the wider world, who has the cunning to navigate the wider world and from which they should learn and then enter into that wisdom themselves. And so the serpent challenges them as one who seems to hold out to them the promise. You can be like, not just like God, but you can be like one of the gods, one of someone like me, someone who's able to rule within this wider world, to be powerful and to be effective, to um, control and to exercise that sort of authority and dominion within the wider world. That you don't, you're just children within this kindergarten. And come out with me and I'll show you what you can be. All you have to do is eat of this fruit. God is withholding this from you. Look what you could become. And maybe the serpent is eating of the tree, some have suggested. I'm not sure, but there is this suggestion that he is representing the wisdom that he's presenting to them as something that they should desire too. The woman is her attention drawn to the tree. She sees it as good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desire to make one wise. It's, it gives you wisdom. It is something that beautiful and essentially desirable. And it seems to be good for sustenance, some, something that will sustain you. It's good for food, delight to the eyes, and desire to make one wise. She takes of the fruit and she eats, and she gives it to her husband who is with her, her man who is with her. And it's significant to bear in mind that the man is described as being with her. Now, was he there all the time? Well, we don't know. I think it's quite possible that he was, and he just stood by. Was he acting, treating her as a guinea pig, that she could be, as one of the animals, the one who tests the food before he does, and that he goes along after he has seen that nothing terrible befalls her? Perhaps. There's certainly the suggestion that he is in the position of the one who should be protecting the woman from the serpent. He's the one who should be keeping his eye on the one that comes from the realm outside the garden. He's the one who's supposed to be guarding the gates. He was the one given that charge in chapter 2, 16 and 17. And so when he eats of the fruit so meekly and doesn't even ask any questions of the serpent, does not challenge the serpent and just follows his wife, there's something deeply wrong that has happened there. And so the fundamental fall 
as we see in Scripture, is again and again described as Adam's fall. Even though the woman eats first, why is this? I think it's because the man had been given the charge of the garden. And the man was the one who let the serpent in, who did not guard it. He's the one who was fundamentally created to protect that realm. And he's the one who used his wife in many ways. He's also one who, in following her, he willingly went into transgression. He knew directly from God that he should not eat of that tree. She was deceived. And so these differences are significant for understanding what takes place. When they perceive their nakedness, they seek to cover themselves, sewing fig leaves together and making themselves loincloths. There's this recognition of being closed off, not just to God, but also to each other. They're not just covering themselves together, but they're covering themselves from each other. They're exposed to each other and to the judgment of the opened eye in a way that makes them feel exposed. I mean, many people talk about having dreams of being naked in front of a large number of people, that you're in a position where you should be exercising some sort of maturity and some ability to um, exercise agency and power within the wider world, and yet you're deeply and painfully exposed to people. And so this is something that they face at this point. Their eyes are opened. They thrust themselves into this position of judgment, eating of the tree of judgment. And then they realize just how woefully unprepared they are. As their eyes are opened, those eyes, as it were, turn back upon themselves and they see in the other person's stare, perhaps, that there's something about them that is woefully and completely unprepared for what they have assumed. And when God comes on the scene, he comes on the scene as one who is interrogating them about what has taken place. Where are you? Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That knowledge is a knowledge that we should come to, that knowledge of nakedness and innocence, but it should become arrived at in a healthy way in a way that's not destructive of us. And that knowledge of nakedness that happens, that knowledge of shame, of a lack of glory, is not one that leads to a greater clothing with glory, but it's a, it's a stripping, and it's troubling on that front. So when we talk in the New Testament, the idea of having our, being, our bodies being clothed, with, being clothed with a greater glory, where that nakedness... Um, that we feel um, is not a nakedness that is destructive, but a nakedness that's leading to a greater glory. Whereas in Adam's case and Eve's case, there's something here that's deeply troubling and unhealthy. When God challenges them, he challenges, he talks to the man particularly first. And he talks to the man in a way that emphasizes the fact that it was the man who was given the commandment concerning the tree. Have you eaten, you singular, eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you singular, not to eat? And again, you have that later on. Um, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, singular, you shall not eat of it. He is given the command particularly, and he is the one who is ex expressly um, challenged on his failure to keep that commandment. The Lord God turns to the woman first, um, or having talked to the man, she turn, he turns to the woman in, um, 
he turns to the woman and challenges her about how she um, was involved in the situation. Now, the man, in his response to God, he blames the woman. But he doesn't just blame the woman, he blames God for giving him the woman. The woman which you gave to me um, misled me. And she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, he knew full well the commandment concerning the tree, tree. And the woman was given to him to hold fast. But yet God had given him his word. And he followed the voice of the woman over the voice of God. And that's, that's important. Later on when we see his judgment, we'll see more about that. The woman, on her part, blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. The woman has far more, has far more reason um, in this case to blame the serpent. The serpent could de- was in a position to deceive her and she was in a position to be deceived. The man has, he sins with a high, with a high hand. The woman sins um, not with the high hand in quite the same way. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and, on you, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent is cursed on his account as one who has to eat dust. He's cursed above all beasts of the field, or maybe from all, exiled, cursed away from all the beasts of the field, that he must be cast out, as it were. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The dust that will later become a bearer of judgment is something that he has to be in intimate connection with. He's on his belly, and probably we are to assume that he was maybe a, a creature with, with legs at, um, prior to this, that he was um, not in intimate connection with the dust. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. One of the things we'll see in these judgments is that friction is placed in all of these relationships. That friction that is placed between the serpent and the woman, between the woman and the man, and between the man and the earth, that friction is part of the judgment, but it's also a blessing as well. It's a friction that prevents when one party goes awry it's having a knock-on effect throughout everyone else. And so as the friction is introduced, the dance, as it were, of reality and these relationships becomes considerably harder, but it also prevents them, like dominoes toppling from all following after each other into sin. That enmity that is placed between the woman and the serpent is something that protects the woman from the influence of the serpent. Without that enmity being placed there, the woman would easily have been led astray by the serpent, and just followed the serpent completely into sin and destruction. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, this is significant, that the seed and the offspring are associated with the woman in particular. Later on, we'll see the woman is called life. Um, The woman, in her particular association with the seed, I think that association is because Adam is, as it were, he's a dead man walking now. He's someone who has committed this great sin, and life is not going to come from him. Um, The life is going to come miraculously through the woman. She is going to be raised up. 
Another thing to bear in mind, the whole concept of wisdom and maturation and these sorts of things that's playing behind this whole chapter, not just within the themes of the narrative itself, but also for the reader. So one of the questions that initially strikes us when we read this passage, well, they don't die. Does, God work, does God's word have its effect? Does God break his word? Is God's threat concerning the tree a real one? And one of the things about learning wisdom is this ability to take that original statement concerning the tree, and as we read through the narrative to understand its true sense, that there is a surprise in the text. The death does not take the form that you expect. The death is real, but it takes a surprising form. And so the reader learns wisdom through this text. And Walter Mobley has some very good discussions upon that. If we're thinking about the learning of wisdom, it's something that we undertake as we read a text like this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's this struggle between the serpent and his offspring and the woman and his offspring. Who's the serpent's offspring? It's children that have been born of the man and the woman, but there is this struggle between them. There's two camps, as it were, and these camps are not camps of the offspring of the serpent in terms of physical serpents, but it's a struggle between two forces, between the, the brood of vipers and the seed of the woman. And these brood of vipers are taken from men. These are people who have been turned by the serpent, who have been who are under his charge, who are led by him. And we'll see this throughout scripture, that these serpent characters, um, tyrants like Pharaoh or Abimelech, Nahash, all these characters are serpents who have lots of serpentine people around them. And when Jesus talks to the um, Jews of his day, talking about brood of vipers, that's part of what he's talking about, that the seed of the serpent are these other people, these or these maybe these descendants of Cain or someone else like that who, is, who are struggling against the people of God, who have allied themselves with the serpent. And there is this intimate struggle that takes place. This struggle is one that will lead to the destruction of the serpent, the bruising of his head, but it will lead to wounding of the um, seed of the woman as well, this bruising of his heel. Now, it's helpful to read this sort of passage against the background of many other typological explorations of these themes in Scripture. So, for instance, if you read the account of Sinai and Israel's rebellion at Sinai, you can see part of the dynamics that are taking place here. Moses comes down the mountain, and he, he's hearing this sound and this riot or riotous noise from the camp, and he approaches Aaron, who's left in charge of the people. And Aaron blames the people for what they have done and has this feeble, pathetic excuse for his part within the affair. And the people are unrestrained or naked. They're, they're engaging in these revelries that, that Moses challenges. Moses comes, as it were, as God does on the scene, as he challenges the man and the woman. He challenges Aaron and he challenges the people. And then he gives them this test where they, oh, the tablets are broken, and then there's the water bearing the dust of the um, golden calf, which is similar to the test of jealousy that we have in Numbers, that the people are tested in that way and judged for their rebellion. And so as we see throughout Scripture, there's this struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. 
And then the woman is judged, or this promise, this judgment contains within it a promise. It's a promise of deliverance. And it's a deliverance that will come in a particular way through the woman and her seed. The woman, however, is not going to come by the seed easily. She is judged. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And so the seed of the woman is not going to come easily. She's going to find that she brings up, as it were, human versions of thorns and thistles, people who will be seed of the serpent. Even though they've been begotten by her, they will be allied with the serpent. She will experience the physical pains of childbearing, of um, labor pains. And she'll experience the pains that come with these things more generally, infertility. She'll experience um, the struggle of wrestling with her body as that realm of um, her dominion and finding that it just is not responding to her. And that death in childbirth is another example that we see. And throughout the book of Genesis, we see this struggle, the woman who's struggling in childbirth, and it's difficult for her. In pain you shall bring forth children. So the promise is attended by the declaration that it will be very difficult. It will come through pain. It will come through pangs. And when we see the development of this within Scripture, this is something that we keep returning to. The woman's bearing of the promise seed is one that comes with pangs and is accompanied by deep pain and also with the threat of the serpent at every point, seeking to destroy her seed while she seeks to bear that seed and protect it from the serpent's clutches. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. question of the desire of the woman is a big one within um, debates on these books, on, on these chapters of Genesis, particularly against the background of um, Genesis 4-7, when the Lord speaks to Cain. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why have you... Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so that idea of sin's desire being for Cain and his duty to rule over it, it's seen as something that is parallel to um, Genesis 3.16 and something that helps us to interpret it. I think we'd have to have tin ears not to recognize some sort of parallel here and some way in which these two verses play off each other. And we need to understand, however we interpret it, that there is some relationship between these things. So what does it mean, um, the desire for the husband? Is it a sexual desire? Is it um, what Susan Foe has argued as the desire to control the husband, the desire to have power over the husband, to usurp his authority? And that is something that, in the recent version of the ESV, it's gotten the margin here in this version of it your desire shall be against your husband and in the latest version of the ESV they've changed that to make that the version within the text itself I think that there is something more going on here the woman's desire for her husband is not a bad thing the woman's desire for her husband is her desire for the heart of her husband it's the desire that she that he might be on her side that he might be her husband that her desire is for him and that he should be allied with her. But yet, she finds that there's friction introduced into that relationship. 
And the serpent's desire then, or the sin's desire for Cain is similar too. That sin is crouching at the door like a wild beast who wants admittance to the door, who wants to come in, who wants to, that entrance to the self. Just as a serpent enters into the garden, the serpent comes into that intimate realm and gains the heart of, um, and gains Eve and through that gains Adam. Sin, the serpent and the beast that's crouching at the door of Cain, wants admittance to the heart, to control the heart of the people of God. And so the woman's desire for her husband is her desire for, I believe, her husband's heart, her desire for his um, union with her. That, and his pa- her power over him is an appropriate one in principle. He's supposed to hold fast to her. And part of that, what that means is that he is deeply attracted to her, but also um, he's drawn to want to please her. And that desire to please her is a thoroughly appropriate thing in principle. But what we see throughout scripture is that the desire of the man to please the woman is the greatest source of the man going astray. Solomon being led astray by his wives. Ahab being led astray by Jezebel. We saw earlier in the reading from Genesis 16 the power that um, Sarai has over Abraham and how that leads to the persecution persecution of Hagar. All these situations show the power of the woman over her husband. And that is not a bad thing to have if it is used righteously. We see Esther, her power in relationship to King Ahasuerus is the means of the salvation of the people of Israel. It's a tremendously important thing within the history of the people of God. They're protected from this genocidal plot against them and it's achieved through the power of the woman to influence her husband. But yet that power is an amb- becomes an increasingly ambiguous power. And so God places friction within that relationship. Just as the friction between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and the woman and the serpent is a means of protecting the woman from the wiles of the serpent. So the friction added between the man and the woman is a means of protecting the man from the woman's influence over him. So as the woman goes towards sin, the man is protected from that. But it's also a form of judgment because a relationship that would have been loving and would have been appropriate with the man cleaving to his wife and being deeply united to her and this deep union of wills and this desire to please her and a pleasing of her in an appropriate way as she leads him in a way and draws him towards wisdom, it becomes something destructive. And so that friction admitted is grace, but it's also judgment. He shall rule over you. Again, I think this is a negative thing. Um, The rule that is admitted at this point is a form of rule that is partly protective. It's protecting protecting him from her negative influence. But it's also a means of oppression in many cases. And we see this throughout the Old Testament and the New in many places, that this ruling over is a rule that leads to deep um, pain on the part of the woman. So we read these passages within Genesis and Judges and other passages like other books like that, where the woman is, suffers violence, where the woman is oppressed in various ways and mistreated. And God speaks out for the woman and those who are oppressed, but the man has a power 
of the woman. And that power more generally is seen within a society that is ordered around men's concerns in ways that crush women. And we see that a lot of times within society, within the church too, that this ruling over is not a healthy thing. It's a breaking down of that original harmony as the two should work together, their hearts united as they work out into the world, it becomes a means of oppression. And um, the man subdues the woman rather than the man being the one who guards and who serves her in a way that builds her up. So the woman is described earlier on as she's built from the side of the man. And there is a sense in which the woman is associated with the realm of the garden, the woman's associated with cities, The woman is someone to be built up. She's the heart of human society, but instead she's Adam and men after him exercise dominion over the woman in a way that they um, subdue the woman rather than building her up. So that relationship has gone awry. To the man he said, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. It begins with the judgment upon Adam for listening to the... It's introduced with the statement because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And that is significant I think here. That... The voice of the wife is an important part of the story, that she has an influence over the man that he should have withstood. He should have withstood this and listened to God's voice over the voice of his wife. And that voice had been given power in relationship to him by God. That voice was misused. It was the woman was deceived by the serpent and he should have resisted the voice. And so the voice of the woman is set off over against the command of God. And so he listened to the voice of the woman over the command of God. And again, we see this as an example, a theme that is returned to in Scripture. The wife that you choose is tremendously important because she has power in relationship to you through her voice. And if you do not choose wisely, she will draw you away from the command of God. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. As we read through this judgment, it's significant to notice the parallels and the interplays between these judgments, this judgment and the previous judgments. So the man is judged in a way that connects his judgment to the serpent. The serpent's judgment is one that he's, as it were, exiled from the other livestock, and he goes on his belly and eats of dust. And the man has a very similar situation that he's, his relationship to the earth is broken. You know, the relationship where the earth should have yielded to him quite freely and um, should have responded to his work and his efforts become one, becomes one associated with toil and effort. And his relationship to the dust is one of painful eating from it all the days of his life. And so this relationship to the earth is similar to the judgment upon the serpent because the man has allied himself with the serpent. And so his judgment is similar to that that falls upon the serpent. 
Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He becomes serpent food. The serpent eats of the dust, and the man shall return to the dust. That he's doomed to this state of um, being subject to the, the serpent's, or being threatened by the serpent's power. And this is part of the judgment that falls upon him. The ground is not cursed in itself, in itself, but in relationship to him. There's also a relationship between the judgment upon the woman and the judgment upon the man. The woman, her relationship is to her body. Um, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That is similar to the judgment that happens upon the earth. So the woman's body is connected to the earth. The pain that she experiences within her own body is a pain that the man experiences in his external labor upon the earth. The earth will not, the womb of the earth will not bring forth its fruit to him in the way that it once did. It will be a painful experience. And I think we need to recognize also in that parallel, it's something about the experience that he will have more generally in raising children too. That the children that he bears with his wife will be like thorns and thistles often, those who serve the serpent, those who become fodder for the serpent. And that struggle is one that is a lot more difficult now as a result of what he has done. This return to the dust, he was taken from the dust and he returns to it. His relationship to his origin becomes fraught with frustration and with difficulty and with this destiny to be overcome by it in some sense. And I think this should, again, help us to understand what is taking place within um, the judgment upon the woman, that her frustration with her origin, her husband, is frustrated. And that desire, again, some have suggested that it's playing on the same Hebrew um, word for return, and it's, um, that there has been a, um, that a letter was changed. But whether that's the case or not, there is a parallel between the two that she, as it were, she returns to her husband and he returns to the earth. But that in both cases, her husband rules over her and the earth rules over the man. It's not a healthy relationship. And that toil is a toil that is also needs to be looked, we need to look back and relate these to the pro themes of promise. The earth is the realm that is associated with the womb. And that association between the earth and the womb is something that we see in poetic places in scripture. So for instance, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return there. Or knit together in the lowest parts of the earth. The woman's body and the earth are closely related together. The woman, or the earth is our mother. We're begotten of the earth. But then the woman is the one who represents that, that earth refined, the glorified earth in a human form. And the one who is our origin, the the ma matter that from which we have arisen, the, the womb of the world is experienced in the woman. But then returning to this womb, returning to the earth, is a tragic thing because that womb, that tomb, is barren and it's not, it has no life to it. And so the themes that we see elsewhere in scripture of the opening up of the tomb, it's a theme of new birth. Resurrection is new birth, birth from the womb of the tomb, the womb of the earth that has become barren, that has been closed to life. And as the man returns to the earth, 
that earth is a barren womb, as we see in Proverbs 30, I think it is. Um, it's never got enough. Let me see. The leech has two daughters. Give and give, they cry. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. And so Sheol, the realm of death, and the womb, the barren womb, these are related together. But then God is the God who opens the womb, who gives life to the dead, to the bodies as if dead. He brings them to new life. And this is a theme that we see throughout the book of Genesis. The man calls his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And so within the promises, or within the judgments, we've already seen a theme of promise emerging. The tensions between the different characters and the ways that friction is introduced into each of their relationships. That things that would have been more fluid and straightforward for them now become toilsome and fraught with difficulty and frustration. But yet there's this theme of life. This theme that God will bring about the deliverance of his people, that he will overcome the serpent and his seed through the seed of the woman. And there's hope there. But also, the woman's name is life. She is the mother of all living. Death is not the final word of this story. There's the admission of death. And that death has a particular character. It's exiled from God's presence. It's all these themes of alienation, alienation from the world, alienation from each other. But then this is going to be overcome through the admission of a new life. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They are closed off, as it were, from their origin the origin of the realm of God's gracious presence within the world, the heaven-like realm, and they're facing it from outside. The judgment that falls upon them is particularly emphasized, it's particularly directed to the man, but it's one that includes the woman as well. They're both driven out of the garden. And the creation of the cherubim may remind you maybe of the the swords of the Levites that come at that point when Israel falls The significance of all of this for the relationship between the sexes is quite considerable. What we see is the falling apart of all the relationships that were set up at the beginning. And also an improper admission to a new stage of life. A stage of life that should have been entered in with the right foot first. Now they stumble in headlong into this stage of life for which they are woefully unprepared. They have the knowledge of good and evil. They are those who are called to exercise judgment in the world. But yet that judgment is one that will lead to, in many ways, complexifying structures of oppression. As we talked about the story that follows, the story of Cain and his offspring, of Lamech and his seven wives, and his, or his, his two wives and his judgment upon the person who um, killed, he, the person who he killed for wounding him. These themes are sort of increase of sinfulness that one blot on the paper is gradually spread out into the wider world so we see a succession of falls arising from this original um, seminal event as it were as we go out 
chapter 4, that fall spreads out into the land until by the time of the flood, it spreads everything over everything and it's destructive and tearing things apart. And so the relationship between the man and the woman is part of this, that this relationship has been, it has gone awry and God will set it straight. But those themes are the, introdu- are the introduction to the narrative that follows, which we'll get into in our next session.